Hey, thanks for listening to Consumed with Scott Porch. Today's show, the Rooster Teeth episode. I sit down with Rooster Teeth co-founder Bernie Burns to talk about the new documentary film, Why We're Here, 15 Years of Rooster Teeth, which works as both a history of the popular digital studio and streaming service and as a fascinating look at the rise of streaming video in popular culture. That's the opening bit from the Rooster Teeth animated series Red vs. Blue, and the source of the title for the new documentary film Why We're Here, 15 Years of Rooster Teeth. When Red vs. Blue launched in April 2003, YouTube was still two years away. Back then, the series circulated mostly on DVDs and on video sites that are now long gone. To make the series, the Rooster Teeth co-founders recorded video from the Halo video game, cut it together, and voiced a story over it with characters named Sarge and Donut and Church. Red vs. Blue is now in its 16th season and one of several popular shows, films, and other projects from the Rooster Teeth digital studio and streaming service. Bernie Burns, who plays Church in Red vs. Blue, is one of the co-founders of Rooster Teeth and one of the producers of Why We're Here, 15 Years of Rooster Teeth, which charts Rooster Teeth's rise by revisiting many of its early offices in and around Austin, Texas. Hey, Bernie Burns, I really appreciate you talking to me. I've uh, seen the documentary, uh, Why We're Here, 15 Years of Rooster Teeth, and really enjoyed it. And uh, I guess just wanted to start with, uh, with that. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate your kind words about it. The, uh, you know, it's a long time in the making, not just for the documentary itself, but all the years of working at Rooster Teeth that we had to have in order to be able to make a doc that long. So you have a lot of footage. Is that mostly from uh, like cell phone cameras? And oh where? gosh, I was surprised at how much early footage you actually have. I, I wish. I mean, just by virtue of the fact that. We were a video production company. The people who worked here, which was five of us, uh, tended to have you know video cameras and things like that. But most of the footage you see comes from either uh, Gus Sarola or myself. And it was going back into the archives and trying to find this thing. I had to go to uh, eBay and buy a Hi8 camcorder to be able to play that <laughs> and a mini DV deck. I had to go back to tapes. And then even like some of the digital uh, footage that we had – we had to choose which ones to go back and, and search through the archives for because those codecs, you just can't get them anymore. We couldn't get like an HDV codec easily. So, yeah, it was uh, it was tough to figure out what to try to parse and what not to. Well, and you can see early in the film, there's this room with like a like a notebook style with flip pages with CD-ROMs in it and then a box of like the hard drives that you plug a USB into and several other kind of storage, several things that weren't even marked. Did somebody go through all of that looking specifically for things for the documentary? <laughs> it was funny because uh, it's one of the first things in the doc is that is Adam Ellis, uh, somebody who works in our IT department going through that. And 
he was he was commenting that our you know Gus Sorol in the in the early days was uh, kind of our lead technical guy, and so. Adam said, I guess Gus did all this, but I, I was just, I was so meticulous about backups. So I would have one drive that I would back everything up on and then one drive that I would make a duplicate and take to my house in case of a fire at the studio or something like that. And then I had all those books of CDs, but then once I turned it over uh, to the company and they were going to safeguard it, then I, it, we lost track of it completely. Yeah. And, uh, and Gus even said he had one drive that... It was so much information on it, and he, he he said the only way you could like catalog what was in it was we had a spreadsheet, but the spreadsheet has been lost over the years, so we couldn't figure out what was on the drive. And I was like, why did you, why did you store the spreadsheet on the hard drive? It's like that's such a simple solution to that. And who knows if you even had the right version of Excel or whatever it was that would be required to open it. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, it's like the internet. I always had this opinion that if anything went online. Uh, it was permanent, and you could never get rid of it. But it's amazing the stuff over the course of the last 15 years that we can't find now. It's just uh, – it gets lost. If you don't take the effort to archive it, it just disappears into the ether. Well, the organizational device that you use for the documentary, which I thought was extremely clever and, and apt for what you were doing, and I've never seen anything quite like it, is you went back – to the locations of the places where the company has been based over the years. How did you come to that? Did you go to one of these locations and then decide that made sense to do it for all of them? Or did you come at it some other way? Well, it's just, it's a very rhythmical uh, over the course of the last 15 years, how often we moved. And so it became, uh, when we started talking about the doc, Matt Hames, our director, I think was the person who wanted to focus on that because a lot of those locations are associated with very specific shows, and and the shows, depending on what's popular, kind of defines the era of Rooster Teeth at that time. So it just kind of made sense to show it. And I think because we didn't have a lot of footage or we didn't have a venue to show it, uh, our audience currently had heard about all these places but hadn't necessarily seen them. The first thing you did when you started in, I think you say 2003 uh, in the film, is this animated series that you made called Red Versus Blue. Was that the business or was that a project that you were all working on and a business came out of that? So uh, the Rooster Teeth in general is two groups of my friends coming together. It was my friends that I was doing uh, web content with and my friends who I was making independent movies with. And so I always wanted to make uh, more scripted content, you know, more movies, things like that. And so even when I was working on web content, I was always trying to find a way to digitize video and put it online, which really wasn't being done very often back then. And Red versus Blue, uh, when it started, it started as a project. In fact, the initial website was redversusblue.com. It wasn't roosterteeth.com. But after Rooster, or excuse me, after Red versus Blue uh, started to take off, then I realized, okay, we got to let people know that there's going to be more than just this one show. So I created the company Rooster Teeth and then started putting Rooster Teeth in front of all of the Red versus Blue episodes so that people would realize it's not just one thing. And – Red versus blue is, I, I guess, a variant on a found footage type series. You create the video with a video game, and then you record tracks over it. I mean, kind, kind of, it's like that. But because it's in a video game, it's also interactive. And so, essentially, the closest thing I can equate it to is it's like digital puppeteering, 
where we take the characters and we have these controllers and like marionettes, we can make them do certain things. Like you can make them turn and you can make them jump. Uh, you know, it's a video game, so you can make them shoot or crouch. Uh, but we figured out a way to be able to make them look like they were talking. Um, and it really is very much like like puppet theater. And so we would just act out these little scenes and then record the dialogue for that. And then we go through and use the digital characters on screen to then act out the radio play, essentially, that we had made. And you're still making the series. That's a that's your longest running project, and you're still doing it. Yeah, it's the longest running web series on the internet. It's uh, 16 seasons now, and uh, it's been uh, it's been through a, a, quite a few directors. I was the primary writer and director for about the first nine, ten years. Uh, then Miles Luna took over, and now uh, Joe Nicolosi is writing and directing it. It's a lot different now than it used to be. Um, now it's a lot more 3D animation. Uh, it's not so much uh, of the digital puppeteering, which is called machinima as an art form. There's a company called machinima as well, but it's kind of confusing because a company named themselves after a genre of filmmaking. And how are you making it now? Or, or is it a is it a CGI show that you're building the the, the characters and the CGI for? Or? It is. It's a hybrid. So we use the video game Halo uh, to make Red versus Blue, and it's based on Halo. Although our storylines are not about Halo, and they're not really about video games. Um, it's more of just a send-up of you know bureaucracy and what it's like to be in the military, and these guys just happen to be intergalactic space warriors, and they're not very good at their job. It's kind of like, uh, best description I ever heard of it was, uh, someone described it as stripes in space, and uh, that's that's what we go for. But now it is... We use the Halo video game engine. Uh, we then use models and do some custom 3D animation as well. Um, you know, we create some of our own assets to add in. It's really evolved into something that's, you know, pretty unique to where, you know, it's a mixture of the game footage uh, and our own custom-made 3D animations. So when you started doing it 15 years ago, did you ask Halo for permission or forgiveness at some point? Well, we, you know, <laughs> we, we had the idea that what we were doing was kind of fun. And I don't really like the idea of, you know, that ask for forgiveness model because that's just, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. And, uh, you know, to Microsoft's credit, uh, once the show started to get popular uh, and they became aware of it, which was really quickly, it was like in the first three or four weeks, uh, they gave us a call and they said, hey, we really like this thing. Uh, we don't really understand what it is, but people seem to really enjoy it. Uh, we just want to sit down and talk with you guys and make sure – uh, that, you know, you can continue to make it, essentially. And we had a really great conversation with them. Uh, and they said, you know, we're a company that values innovation. And we, we say that we value innovation. This is something that seems innovative. So let's put our money where our mouth is and let's just see where this goes. And let's see where this goes. Uh, turn into, a, you know, a couple weeks, then a couple months. And now... Here we are 16 seasons later, still making Red versus Blue. You talk early on about the the distribution for the early seasons, about having boxes of, of DVDs that you were putting labels and postage yeah. on and shipping around. What was the, the distribution? Was, was there a YouTube at the time? Was there a way to watch it online at the time? Online video... Uh, was so nascent back then that you couldn't even watch a video in a web browser. That if you clicked on a video file, it would send you to download it. Was this um, before so, Real Player? 
where Real Player existed and they had some streaming, but it wasn't it wasn't the quality that we needed to make something narrative. I mean, these were very false or very small resolution uh, sizes. I mean, I think the the public version of Red versus Blue, for instance, was. 320 by 240. Oh, wow. And then the the high-res version that we had for our uh, subscribers, that was 640 by 480. I and think, now it's like, I think you know, emojis yeah. in Twitter have a higher bit rate than that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they might. They might. And the crazy thing was that, that it was just a – you know, a uh, symptom of the time and the technology that existed, uh, the the file sizes were actually much larger than they are now. No, In order for people to watch, yeah, compression, right? So a, a two minute, three minute video that we made at six forty by four eighty was like eighty five ninety megs, whereas now we can get away with that for like. 12 megs because of what's happened in video compression over the years. So what was the grapevine for this? How did, I mean, what was the, the way that people found out about it and the way that spread from 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 there? Well, that, that ties into the, the the distribution question as well. It, was, it just shows where online video was. A lot of people were introduced to Red versus Blue because someone either forwarded the file to them in email, but those were big email attachments, or... The more common one we heard about or saw when we went to live events was someone would burn a CD and hand it to one of their friends with five or six episodes on it. In fact, there were some people, that's what they did in their group of friends. They would download all the Red versus Blue episodes and burn them and distribute them to their friends. And because there was no YouTube, it was all word of mouth. You know, there wasn't like a front page that we could be on. It was just our website and that's it. And then when it came time to figure out like, okay, what is this show going to do after we finish, say, a first season, our only option at that time was really to make DVDs and sell DVDs. And that's what we did. I think around that time, I was probably pretty active in uh, message boards for purposes of trading, like recordings of live shows was, was probably something I was into at the time. Was there a corollary to that with how people were getting we're getting rooster teeth. Was there some sort of boards that developed around what you? Oh, were absolutely. Doing? Yeah, we we came out of you know a number of different message boards on a number of different sites. Uh, some of the the core members of the original group, uh, we had all at different times been on, for instance, the View Askew message boards, which were huge for you know Kevin Smith's company. He just had this little www board that, I mean. Thousands of people were on there on a regular basis just sending messages. So we've always been a part of that culture, and that was important to us. Uh, when we started Red versus Blue, we knew, first of all, to make our own, but then secondly, to use those message boards in order to get the word out about Red versus Blue. And there were sites like Slashdot and Penny Arcade and then FARC.com. Uh, those were very critical in getting the word out about Red versus Blue back in those days. And you're probably getting a lot of initial distribution of your earlier seasons to new people every time you have a new season. I mean, I guess that that occurs now with Netflix and and other platforms. Was that something that you saw change a lot over time that you were you were getting a lot of requests for earlier seasons when later seasons came out and you were getting a lot of requests for putting things on formats maybe that didn't exist when you when you first started? One of, the, one of the things I think we've learned over the years is that, um, you know, we can have our own website uh, and we can tell people, oh, come to Rushi.com if you want to watch these shows. Uh, but really, people have their own habits online. 
And if you want to reach a broader audience, you can't tell people how they have to watch your content. You have to make your content available in a lot of different ways, you know, that people watch it. And so you can't really, it's a lot better for us to go out even years later when, you know, we were finally embracing YouTube. Uh, We made a YouTube channel just because we were spending so much of our time pulling down files from YouTube and deleting like reposts that people had put up of the series. I mean, some of them had millions of views and we were taking them down from YouTube because we weren't on YouTube. Uh, so then we just, we you know, we decided to do it ourselves. Years later, uh, when Red vs. Blue went to Netflix, which was around season 11 at that point in time, I got so many messages uh, from people who said, uh, uh, oh, Red vs. Blue is on Netflix Great. Now I can finally watch the show. It's like that, that Red vs. Blue is available in every single format you could imagine for free all over the Internet. But there's just some people when they were binge watching content back in those days, binge watching meant Netflix to them. And so the fact that it was on Netflix meant this person could now watch the series in its entirety. You know, there was a time when video apps really got going and particularly when HBO Now came out that. I thought there was a pretty good chance that going forward that the app was going to be the dominant mode. And then, you know, now if you look at, I mean, HBO or, or, or Netflix or anything else, it, that really hasn't won out. I mean, it's, it's the availability of things on, on a lot of platforms has become the norm. And, and what Netflix does has really become the exception. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, people like Amazon and Hulu, I think, are trying to do what Amazon uh, is. But Amazon, I mean, excuse me, Netflix uh, really has has realized, I think, or before anyone else, when they invested in House of Cards and were willing to pay millions of dollars per episode. Um, you know, I think they realized the value of having original content. And really, I think the only thing that separates, say, Netflix from HBO, because HBO has always understood that. Um, you know, at least since the 80s, uh, that HBO is tied into just the old model of cable television and, and you know, having – being bundled with a bunch of other services. It was a premium service, but, you know, you had to go through your cable company and get all those bundles. Now, what I think of those – when I see those apps, they have – circumvented that cable system, I think, and now they're unbundling all these channels and they just call them apps where it's always been a fight to try to get things unbundled so you can just subscribe to, you know, whatever channels you watch. Want Cable companies have, have never wanted that to happen. Well, and going back to, I guess, the early 2000s with Red versus Blue, at, at, at some point or, or all along this time, you're starting to do other things too. You're making TV ads, you're, you're starting to do podcasts. What what was the, the the first couple of big things that bubbled up for you after Red versus Blue? Well, the first thing was to uh, try to catch lightning in a bottle the second time. So we tried to replicate our success with Red versus Blue. We tried to make other machinima series uh, in other video games, and those had you know varying success. Nothing nearly as uh, popular as Red versus Blue. But what came out of that is we built a reputation with video game companies of being able to take a video game and do fun stuff with it and make cool shots in it and still have it be representative of what the video game actually looks like. And that has a huge, as you can imagine, commercial application, uh, especially for television commercials produced about video games. So we, for a, a few years behind the scenes, we were producing a lot of different 
TV commercials and campaigns uh, for various video game franchises. We did all of the EA Sports uh, commercials for probably three years, I would say. Is this the "It's in the game" commercials? Yeah. Uh, uh, what was the What was the slogan then? Yeah, but it's it's definitely. I think "In the Game" was a little bit before us. Uh, it might be. It might be. I don't remember what it was. I should because I all watched all those commercials like eight thousand <laughs> times, but my brain has uh, has protected me and blocked it from my memory. But yeah, and then uh, you know we always the the other weird thing was that my group of independent filmmaking friends, um, we never made animation. And when I came up with the concept of Red versus Blue, you could not design a method of animation that is more like live action filmmaking. Than red versus blue. I mean, when you see something on screen, it's not like we animated the characters, at least not in the early days, not like we animated the characters to do what they were doing. It was literally a live person doing a live performance. And we had to do takes. You don't often do takes in animation, you know? It's like, oh, we didn't get that right. Let's go again. You know, oh, you gotta hit your mark. So a lot of uh, a lot of red versus blue in machinima is a very similar to live action because that's the kind of filmmakers we've always been. And so we got back into uh, live action filmmaking with some of our shorts uh, and then used the podcast as a way to promote that. And then additionally, the machinima evolved itself uh, into being less scripted and more personality based. And that turned into our gameplay group, Achievement Hunter, which became this huge Let's Play network. You see a lot of people getting into animation as first-time creators today, but the model is typically, you know, like Nick Kroll uh, with his uh, Netflix series, is you 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 write a script, you sell your show, and then somebody else does the animation. It was your model a, a rejection of that, or was that not something you thought about at the time? I tell you, our, our model was a rejection of rejection. I mean, we were in that <laughs> mode where we were, you know, the the world the world in the '90s of making independent film. You know, it was the Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez model, where you'd spend you know ten to twenty thousand dollars on uh, independent film, and you would just basically beg prestigious film festivals to let your film be put in front of an audience, and that's the process we went through for probably two or three years. As filmmakers, before we put in 2001, I put a video online. It was a, a parody of an old Apple uh, computers ad. It was, if you remember the Switch campaign, uh, we did a parody of that. And that was our first video that ever went viral. That went everywhere. And I had friends calling me from all over the country that I went to university with. And they said, oh, I saw this video. It sounded just like something you would write. And I said, that's, that's it, that I did write that. And it was amazing to me in 2001 that I could put something online and in less than a day, it got to people all over the country that I would have called to tell them to watch the video. I just hadn't had time to. So that was a moment of like, why are we going through all these gatekeepers with film festivals? Why don't we just go directly to our audience? And that light bulb moment was what led eventually to Rooster Teeth and Red versus Blue. And Robert Rodriguez was probably in Austin making films at that time you were starting, right? He is currently our next door neighbor. Uh, yeah. Troublemaker Studios is right next door to to Rooster Teeth. And so, um, is there, was there a culture of that out, outside of 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 you and and Robert Rodriguez in Austin at the time? Well, I remember, I remember, I I mean, I mentioned Robert Rodriguez very specifically because he was a huge inspiration for me uh, as an independent filmmaker. Um, he was about two years ahead of me at the University of Texas. Uh, he was actually a cartoonist for the student newspaper, the Daily Texan. And then he made El Mariachi, 
which he made for $7,000 uh, down in Mexico, and it got picked up by Miramax, and he lit the independent film world on fire. Now it's produced like, I don't know, half a dozen franchises himself. Uh, and so there was always this feeling of like, wow, I could do this. But he still uh, works know? under budget. I mean, even his kids' movies with the special effects, I mean, th- those are all f- very inexpensive uh, uh, projects that he's made relative to what, you know, to what else is in the, you know, is in the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's a he's a true filmmaker. Even when he finishes, you know, like a huge show like Battle Angel Eater, big big movie like that, he's often shooting something else. You know, he, there's not much downtime for him, I don't think. And uh, yeah, he's very very inspirational. And I think honestly, he's a little bit ahead of the curve in a lot of ways, but really ahead of the curve of what now is we consider online like YouTube creator culture, where the audience does have this feeling that there's a very thin line. Between watching YouTube and being a mega popular international YouTube star. It's like you're really just one upload away from hitting it big. And I think that Robert Rodriguez was one of the first people that inspired that in other people in the traditional film world. Because he's like, I don't, you know, I could go to, you know, a financier or I could go to a studio and try to get money to make a movie. Or just go to make it myself, you know, and then put it out there. And it worked. And it worked the first time he tried it. So, yeah, he was a huge inspiration. Uh, Gavin Free is an interesting person uh, in the film. He came to Rooster Teeth after the, the, the first wave of people who were there and, and came to the company as a, a fan of the things you were already doing. And really without a job or even a role. I mean, he basically just showed up and said, I'd like to start doing stuff for you. Was was that in the culture at the time of make your own job? I have I have always been a big believer in when you find someone that's a good fit, uh, don't worry so much about the position or the headcount. It's more important to start working with people that you creatively sync with and that inspire one another. And Gavin was definitely one of those people. Um, he was also uh, one of the first examples of what's been a really great part of Rooster Teeth, which is some of our best hires, and there's been a lot of them uh, at the company, have come from people in our community. Because for so many years, really between 2003 and 2011, when Netflix started to make original series, people weren't that interested in online video. You know, Definitely not traditional media was, was not interested in online video. And so to hire people, it was always this long conversation to explain to people what we were doing. But if you were a member of our community, we didn't have to explain to you what we were doing. You already got it and you're already interested in it. And so when you, we had uh, – we have now about 2 million registered members on our website. And that became this incredible filtering process for people who got what we were doing, but then also these really talented people who wanted to make things and started to make things and post them on the site. They started to filter uh, through to the top, like uh, Jesse Cowell in New York. Uh, we had worked with Gavin Free, uh, Barbara Dunkelman. It's just these really incredible voices that uh, we're grateful that we discovered. When you started making live action shorts, uh, someone in the documentary makes the comment that y- you didn't know how to use some of the equipment and were figuring it out as you went. And it immediately r- reminded me of talking to people at UCB Theater in New York and, and L.A. and having a very DIY aesthetic about being the talent, being the writer, being the director, being the producer, being the promoter, and and having a, a willingness to come to 
whatever the tools of the, the the business are as you know you can be the the, the lighting and the gaffer and the cinematographer is, did that make it easier to to come to making your own stuff without having this layered idea that I'm the talent I'm not the cinematographer uh, did, did, did that make a difference in the way you made these projects well I think you know when you're it basically is a startup or like a small independent film crew and you have so many slash job titles when you don't have many resources and if we did have any resources we usually invested them in equipment and technology and you know as technology improved we would just play with it and see you know what we could do with it how could we make our own mark and you know we're still doing that to this day i have a regular session uh, every Monday where I sit down with some of the people who work in our design department and photography and everything. Just We try to come up with cool new looks for things and cool new um, ways that we can shoot motion. This is what we've been working on lately. But then also it's, you know, we have another one of our original crew, Gus. He is, uh, his whole job is looking at VR and AR, AR and seeing, you know, what can, what can we do there? Um, because we, we are really excited about it, but it does seem limited in what you can present on a narrative basis uh, in those technologies. But we're hoping with, you know, if we play with it a little bit, we'll discover something cool. Your trajectory has been pretty similar because I think of, of the way the tools developed and the way YouTube developed has been very similar to companies like Rocket Jump and Funny or Die and some others. Have you talked to a lot of those people all along the way about what you're doing or, or has it been more of a competitive or, or territorial approach of, of people trying to preserve their own ways of, 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 of doing these things? Well, as far as it being competitive, we I've never taken that approach. Um, I, I, I think that it's very collaborative. Um, and I had an early lesson in that uh, when we first started with Red versus Blue. There was a very popular Flash animation series at the time called Home Star Runner, also a big inspiration for the start of Rooster Teeth. And on sites like FARC that I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that was the most popular thing. Everyone waited every Friday for the new episode of Homestar Runner to come out. And I got the privilege to meet those guys at South by Southwest about a year later. And we had a funny conversation where I said, because so few people were making online video, I said, you know, I guess we should probably look at each other like competitors, but it kind of feels like you show up to the Boston Marathon and there's only four other people at the starting line. You're like, okay. I guess we're racing against each other, but really there's only four of us. We're kind of just who can run the fastest and you're kind of racing against yourself more than anything else. And then years later, you mentioned Rocket Jump. Uh, Freddie Wong, we have a – I've known him for years. We have a fantastic relationship. And uh, he, he's actually the epitome to me of a very collaborative, uh, open filmmaker. When we did our crowdfunding campaign for our feature film Laser Team – uh, we ended up raising two and a half million dollars for it and uh, broke the record for the most money ever raised on Indiegogo at that time. Super Troopers 2 uh, beat it about a year later or a few months later, like six months later. Uh, but Freddie had already done three successful crowdfunding campaigns for Video Game High School. And so I mentioned to him, I said, hey, we're going to do a crowdfunding thing for Laser Team. I know we're kind of behind the curve on this, but uh, we want to we want to give it a shot. And he literally said, come over next time you're in L.A., Come to my studio. I'm going to show you all my numbers. And he went over every single thing, every dollar that they made from crowdfunding, where it went, where they made mistakes, where they had success. And it was just it's it's so refreshing to have that. And it's it's such a great relationship with him. And I can't say enough good things about Rocket Jump. 
How do you approach distribution on projects now? I mean, where, where will this documentary be and, and, and how will it be available over a period of time? Mm-hmm. Well, our CEO, Matt Hullum, has a great expression where he says we are format agnostic, uh, which means we don't really try to force things into a certain format or distribution method. We just make a project we want to see. And then as we get close to ending the project, we say, okay, where, where could this be a good fit? Um, because, you know, when we started with Red versus Blue back in the day, we couldn't have predicted the way that people were going to be watching media in 10 years, you know, and we think it's going to change just as much over the course of the next 10 years. Um, and so for the doc in particular, we'll definitely put it on our platform, which is Rooster Teeth First. That's our subscription video platform. And then we'll see. Uh, we'll see if there's a broad enough interest uh, in the documentary in order for us to take it out. And maybe, you know, the, there's always the possibility of film festivals. Um, and then documentary distribution is a really specific animal. Uh, and, you know, there's specific people we talk to. But we have about six different documentaries we, we've produced. Um, and Red vs. or excuse me, uh, the Why We're Here might feel like the most inside baseball because it's about one company, but the trajectory of that company exactly matches up with the rise of online video. So I hope that people will see that when they watch it. And you've made two laser teams now, right? Yes, we've made two laser teams. And the distribution of those has been different. I think you did theatrical and um, maybe SVOD in different ways for each of those. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the first one was crowdfunded. So we distributed it to all the crowdfunding backers. We distributed that to them on DVD and home video and then digital files as well. Uh, but what happened that was we couldn't have possibly predicted was right at the end of the post-production of Laser Team in this incredible like two-month window, uh, we learned that Google was launching their own subscription video network, YouTube Red. And it was just really excellent timing. Uh, and YouTube came to us and said, hey, we'd like this to make this you know, one of the first shows uh, that we put up on YouTube Red, one of the first programs. And I believe it was the first movie. I think it was. Definitely the first scripted movie. Um, there was a documentary about Lily Singh at the time as well. But uh, it was it – was, I mean, how often in history did you get to come up against uh, a major company like Google launching an incredibly large platform at the same time you're finishing your movie? It was just very serendipitous timing. Uh, and then so then then after that, YouTube financed uh, the sequel to Laser Team. And so it's appeared on YouTube Red. But as you know, over time, you know, it moves into different formats. And so that's where we are with Laser Team now is we're looking ahead to when it moves to different formats. So are you going to make another one? Are you going to make a series version of it? How, how are you looking at what to do with it as a franchise? I don't know. We have a lot of fun making those movies. You know, I like fun, like low budget sci-fi. And it's I mean, these movies are, you know, three or four million dollars. But, you know, for sci-fi, that's not a huge budget. Um, and, we, you know, we have a lot of fun with it. But there was the whole thing on the second movie when we said, all right, here we are. Do we want to start making sequels? Is this are we want to do this with movies yet? Uh, so, yes, I would love to make another laser team, but I would also like to make a lot of other movies as well. And so it's just, you know, what are the opportunities that we have and then what are we passionate about? And let's that'll that'll define what we do for the next six months to a year. How have you approached making uh, TV pilots or selling uh, scripted for streaming? Is that something that you're wanting to make a priority of? Well, it's not really critical, I don't think, for us to go towards television. There was a lot of people 
uh, in the early YouTube days that once they got popular on YouTube, they tried to move over to TV. That was never our goal. Uh, and we have had, of course, with the popularity of Red vs. Blue, some interest from television networks uh, that wanted to take Red vs. Blue and put it on the air. But I was pretty honest about what we were making. It was very, very, very uh, uh, Wasn't it was it perfect. on streaming at one time? It was, uh, well, it's on Netflix. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. I thought you. I remembered you telling me it was on Netflix. Yeah. But I, w- I always had the opinion to you, for, especially for television, is like, okay, this thing works really well for the internet, but the aesthetic of it is such that I don't know that people want to watch 22 minutes of you know video game footage with people talking over it. So we actually developed an animated series based on Red versus Blue, uh, and we got pretty far along with some networks, but it was... What really killed the deals on that was they just wanted us to turn off our web series uh, and just – they didn't even care about it. They just like just shut it off. It's like, no, this is what uh, the whole thing's based on. And this was as late as like 2008, 2009. They were like, why would you get a TV deal? Why do you care about your your web thing? It's like, okay, I guess we'll just go do this. And uh, we went back to, to working on the web stuff and uh, never looked back. And finally, one of the interesting things in the documentary that I noticed several iterations of, and I I was curious if this is still in the culture of the company, is that you have a tendency to sneak up and slap each other kind of (laughs) a little too hard on on the face. And I, I wondered if there's, is there like a code of conduct for that? Are there certain people who are allowed to be the slapper are there certain people who are off limits can you opt out i mean how does what are the rules well yeah you could absolutely opt out <laughs> that's not that's not a company wide culture thing that's actually one specific group of okay. people the, the achievement hunter group in particular um, they're kind of like they play video games but the best way to describe the entertainment value of what they do is they're kind of like a cross between the Howard Stern show and Jackass. And Achievement the, Hunter is a web series. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a group. It's like a production group. It's used to be six people. Now it's 10 people uh, that are on camera on a regular basis. And they just, uh, they kind of have their own methodology. But we're really careful about when people come to work here. One of the rules I've had for years is we, we don't have any hidden camera footage. We don't put up hidden cameras in the office to prank each other or anything like that just because this is a work environment, you know, and I want people to feel like they can be creative. Uh, and also, uh, it's more of an unwritten rule, but essentially anyone who's a, who appears on camera here, especially in our podcast where they, you know, talk about some pretty personal stories, everybody has essentially final cut. They can say, hey, I said this thing in the podcast and I would prefer if we just cut it out because I just I didn't say it right or it's going to upset somebody. Um, It hasn't happened very often, but I think that's very important uh, to give people that authority so that when they're on camera, they're not holding back at all. Because a lot of times you think, oh, I shouldn't say this so you don't say it. But if you know you can always cut it out later, you go ahead and say it. And then once it's out there, you realize, oh, it's not as damaging as I thought it was to my reputation or whatever. (sighs) Well, Bernie Burns, if that is your real name, I yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you talking to me. I really enjoyed uh, watching the documentary on both the level of watching the technology change over time and watching the company uh, grow over time. And I, I really hope that your marketing will reach people on that level, that it's it's not just a a a a project for the rooster teeth faithful to see how it all happened i think it's got a definite market for this is what happened in 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 internet 
technology and a lot of other facets of technology over this last 15 years. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, these documentaries that we make, um, you know, and the feature films like Laser Team, one of the benefits that they have is it's a great way for our fans who are highly engaged and super ravenous about Rooster Teeth. It's a great way for them to introduce people in their lives to what they're watching. And you can't really do that with a 16-season box set of Red vs. Blue. Nobody's going to watch that. But it's like, oh, this documentary I think is going to be a great way for people to say, "You just watch this. You know, It's an hour and 20 minutes, and it'll explain everything about this thing that I love and so many other people love as well. And where did Bernie come from? My last name. My name is Michael Burns. And uh, when I went to high school in Houston, there was already every version of Michael. There was a Michael, a Mike, a Mikey, and a Mickey. And they said, we can't – we have to come up with a nickname for you. And I, a person said to me – her name was Janine. She said, what's your last name? And I said, Burns. And she goes, we're going to call you Bernie. And I said, okay, that's not going to stick. I have been Bernie every single day of my life since that moment. I appreciate you talking to me. Good luck on the film. Thanks so much. <laughs>